Depending on whom you ask, the Mormon Church and the people that form their membership is either a fringe group on the edge of the American frontier and the Christian theological tradition, or a successful, if unique, people that have managed to become a regular part of American society. But what is rarely in dispute is the Mormons are the only large religious sect with domain over effectively the entire state of Utah and a significant presence in the surrounding states to have fought a series of skirmishes and small wars with the U.S. federal government and managed to survive. Not only that, but the Mormons have also thrived financially, as well as demographically, with higher birth rates than the American average and constitute a growing segment of the population in the Mountain West as well as abroad with their missionary work. The old distrust, however, still lingers among many, as the recent standoffs involving the Mormon Bundy family in 2014 attests. Tonight, we are joined by Dylan Schmidt, who grew up in the church, to offer his personal experience as well as a perspective on the outlook of the Mormons going forward. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2020. So hopefully everybody had a good holiday break. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to everybody. Um, We'd like to start off the year with, uh, I think, a very interesting topic, uh, one that we've mentioned more than once on the show, but none of us are actually of the Mormon Church, but we do have a a former member of the church to join us, and uh, I'd like to welcome him, Dylan Schmidt. Uh, He wrote a very good article on the Republic Standard, and I'd like to uh, recommend anybody who's curious about the Mormon question, as he titled the article, to check it out. Uh, but thank you for coming on, Dylan. Um, how are you doing this evening? Very good. Thanks for having me on. So I guess just to break the ice, um, and actually before we do that, I just wanted to thank we had a recent Bitcoin donation. Uh, the way the blockchain works is sometimes very confusing. So let me just say it was for about $40. So whoever donated uh, roughly that amount, we're very appreciative. If you'd like a free copy of one of our books, let us know at myth20c at tunanota.com. Uh, but just to break the ice, uh, Dylan, tell us about your experience growing up perhaps a little bit in the church and then why uh, you're no longer with them. Um, so growing up in the church, I grew up sort of within what you might call the Mormon sphere of influence where most people are Mormon. And to me, it always seemed like that was obviously the normal because you grew up with it. I didn't realize how strange it was until I left the church. And um, really, I just left the church because when I turned 18, it was around the time to look at going on a mission. And I realized I didn't believe in it enough to teach it to other people. And I felt like my mission was to be called somewhere else and do something else. 
And so I guess at that time you were, you know, you don't have to explain how old you were, but most likely the U.S. was engaged in the war on terror. And so did you feel like that was the cause of the day and that you were more inspired to go do that than spread the word of Joseph Smith? I was, and it wasn't for the normal reasons. Um, For me, Boy Scouts, playing football in high school, having a camaraderie of something like that was always really important. And missionary work didn't seem to have that as much. And so that was most of why I joined the Army, was just um, that that was more in line with, I guess, my nature. Yeah, and, and you were mentioning, because um, I, I always ask guests, you know, what you're comfortable and not comfortable talking about. Uh, and you said that actually, you know, you're growing up, you, it, was, it seems like it was a fairly positive experience. You're not really... Uh, worried about saying anything that would be uh, bothersome to some of the people who are still, you know, within the church. Uh, but what you mentioned that I thought was very interesting was that most of the things the church um, doesn't want ex-members to talk about is what actually happens after 18. You don't have to go into too much detail if you don't want to, but could you maybe give us some hints as to what that might mean? So the Mormon church has, um, unlike a lot of other Christian religions, it builds temples, You've probably seen them if you've been to someplace like Salt Lake. And those are distinct from a regular church. So a regular church building would be sometimes called a meeting house, would be where they go on Sunday and have regular sermons and do everything like that. And then inside temples, they do religious rituals. And that's something that most Christian religions don't seem to have anymore, which everybody outside the Mormon church would think is very strange. And they they use the term that it's sacred, not secret, but would prefer people don't talk about it most of the time. And so in a temple is, you know, one of the ones, the thing that I'm more familiar with, is Mormons do what's called baptisms for the dead. And that's something most people know about that have studied the Mormon church. It's not really a secret, but that kind of work is done in the temple. Which so I think the the point at which this entered the public consciousness, there was some amount of butthurt uh, by journalists that you can imagine uh, with tremendous accuracy their background, um, who were upset that uh, I believe some uh, churches I don't even know if they were properly uh, more than like affiliated with the the kind of institutional Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day. Latter-day Saints, or if they were some uh, offshoot, but they had performed uh, baptisms for the uh, the souls or for the dead uh, killed in the Holocaust, uh, notably uh, the you know, Jews, various Jews killed in the Holocaust. I think that was the first time that I became uh, aware of that, uh, you know, sort of practice or tradition. Which you know, it, it's it's common. There, there's a standard prayer in uh, certainly in the Catholic Church for uh, you know prayers for the salvation of the souls of the dead. Um, I mean, the the distinction seems to be that you know it's it's uh, for the souls of the uh, the Catholic dead as opposed to just like general dead whom people hope to be um, sort of received uh, post post uh, mortem into the. Uh, the Mormon church. Um, Some of the difference might be, I'm not familiar with a Catholic prayer, but the Mormon baptisms for the dead happen by name. So that's part of their work with genealogy. 
and, and getting these big, long family lists is that when they do the ceremony, they do it by name. And that, I think, was some of what upset some of the Jewish community. And I know that some of the main LDS church was involved in discussions with the Jewish community to sort of make lists of people to specifically exclude from baptisms for the dead. <laughs> Which is weird, because like Judaism doesn't even really have a proper notion of the afterlife. So it's unclear why they would be butthurt about this. I mean, other um, than... Yeah. <laughs> because they have to make up a bunch of names, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's like, uh, Jimmy Rosenschmidt. It's like, hmm, love that guy. Well, it's well, also like an outside group is somewhat interfering with their own faith. And it's, I, I don't know, you know, most Christian churches, they talk about Israel constantly, but the meaning of it and the interpretation of it is very different depending on whom you're referring to. And so I don't know, maybe they're just, they, 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 they're mistrustful of outsiders doing things like that. I, I couldn't explain it really any other way. Speaking of which, uh, Dylan, what was the attitude amongst people you knew uh in the lds regarding the perpetual desert wars and the you know politics generally speaking of the last decade most people who i know who are still mormon have the same opinion as the average republican in that like intel about a week ago they were thinking we should get out of all these wars in the middle east but with recent events meaning the recent killing in the, outside the Baghdad airport, that, oh, all of a sudden now there's a fight to be had, and easy to stoke up to fight that, but it's just very strange. Is, um, does part of that have to do with uh, some of the often remarked connections between Mormons and some of the security services and upper echelons of the military services? Is I there- don't think so i think it's more just the culture of being out west and uh, the culture you know being in the same uh, cultural soup as, as sort of the cowboy republican mindset right well i mean that's one of the interesting things that i was hoping to kind of uh get your thoughts on um the one of the ways that i um kind of interpret uh mormonism i think theologically there it like it's it, it's not interesting um and i don't mean to offend any of our mormon listeners by that um like they're uh the like theology in general um like just different human groups kind of use it as a rallying point and the finer theological points are almost never significant like hundreds of thousands millions of people have died over theological points that literally like if you explain them to people they they cannot discern a difference between the two sides in you know our kind of contemporary understanding but i mean these differences between groups and kind of the uh the ways that groups picture themselves can be extremely significant and one of the um ways that i seem to see the kind of the mormon culture um positioning itself is is almost this quest for normalcy that i mean so um i don't know how much we want to get into the weeds of uh kind of the the history but this was uh kind of an offshoot of one of these uh dozens of christian sects 
that fissioned uh, during the American Second Great Awakening in the 1840s, um, along with uh, you know Christian Science, um, uh, you know certain strains of Methodism, a whole bunch of different ones. But the distinction being that the Mormons actually emigrated; they went to a discrete geographic area where they had uh, demographic predominance, and sort of you know the the rest of the history almost of the mormon to uh you know gentile if you will uh dynamic is kind of under what terms and to what extent do they reintegrate and a lot of what i see is uh kind of you know almost a a more american than the average american uh type dynamic where they have the reputation for being, um, for instance, extremely patriotic, part of the reason why they are so heavily represented in our various uh, security services, um, for being uh, sort of um, at least uh, in ambition, extremely morally upright, um, and uh, sort of, you know, attempting to uh, engage with uh, the this you know almost 1950s uh, vintage idea of what America is about. I mean, as uh, somebody who came from the inside, did you kind of see some of that striving, or is that purely just you know my flawed perception? You don't see it as much, I think, from the inside. It's I don't know, maybe like a fish trying to see up out of the water. Like it, it just you don't notice it until you leave it a little bit. Um, but I, that's a very accurate way of putting it, particularly the church after, I don't know, around, uh, 1920 or so yeah. around that point, the church sort Historically, of Historically, they hated the government from what I can tell, but yeah, talk right. about how that transition happened. So I think just real easy, the, the basic timeline of the church is that it starts around 1830 and the History under Joseph Smith is that they essentially settle in one place, they get kind of big, and then eventually get having problems with the locals. They get run out of town, set up someplace else. This happens over and over until eventually one of those turns into Joseph Smith being killed. Um, obviously, there's a lot more detail than that you can go into. If I could ask a, a brief clarifying question about what the disputes were because i always heard you know the mormons were chased out i'm like well what were they doing that was so annoying the only thing i could glean from reading uh that biography that you recommended uh, to me no one knows my history about joseph smith and i only got through about half of it by the way but it's really it's uh, really thick there's a lot there <laughs> pretty long yeah and there's a limiting amount of information i i could uh usefully you know uh utilize in my own life so i i kind of reached my stopping point but it was interesting up until that point at least and um what i was gathering was that they were in missouri at one point like they had moved from new york to uh, missouri and then illinois i think but the problem was that missouri i think was a slave state and there had been this uh, revelation. I'm not sure if the structure of the church was as it is today, whereby the current president is also viewed as a prophet. And so anything he views is sort of a direct interpretation or anything he, he espouses as church policy is viewed as coming directly from God. And so he may have been saying at the time something about, uh, you know, slaves, you know, are, are you know, not, uh, not the Christian way. And I think that was the main gripe. But please correct me. What was the main reason people didn't like them? Can you explain so, that? 
Yeah, there's a lot of different ones. Um, that is one thing, is that most Mormon immigrants to the various areas came from areas that were at least sympathetic to um, abolitionism. But I don't know of any specific revelations. There could be, I just might not be aware of them, that Joseph Smith had. Um, under his time when he was running the church, he was also the prophet, so he was anything he said could be interpreted as the word of God. And other things that caused problems was that the Mormons could be essentially a giant voting block. So when you're when you're not just the pastor of a church, you're the prophet who tells you directly from God that can influence people a lot more. So they could vote as a block. That was one big conflict. Um, the Mormons tended then and now somewhat to have a lot of economic cohesion. And so they could move into an area and like our Dems, um, sort of push out the local uh, operators in whatever the economic thing they were doing was. And um, I'm trying to think if there's any other ones. That was That's really the main thing. The other big thing that I think drove a lot of the conflict is that Mormonism is significantly different from other forms of Christianity. Like, it's it has its own extra book. It has... Yeah, a lot I, of other in, in like are, a purely theological like, sense I, I think like there there's kind of a dis, a, a discreet consensus that they're not really christian well i mean you look at how difficult a time catholics had in this country how many people just absolutely loathed catholics and you can imagine that same sort of animosity directed towards people with equally kind of goofy notions of christianity in what was a very strictly um, mainline Protestant country with a very strict uh, kind of background on what exactly was acceptable belief. So you can, you know, that the notion of a of a walking prophet who's also kind of walking around his head of a church, and you, I can easily see Protestants in America going, well, how is that different from Roman popery? You know, you, you can't just walk around and say you're a prophet and tell people what to do. That's that's very uh, improper. That's very ungentlemanly. Well, so I can imagine from a, from a cultural standpoint, that alone was very off-putting to people. Because, again, Catholics were already off-putting enough based on some of the similar things, similar ways in which they operated in the you know, internal mechanisms of Catholicism. I can easily see how that would piss off locals when they're sort of seeing the same thing arise from this internal sect of emigres from kind of the northeast region moving around and taking over local businesses or driving out local businesses, and they also have a walking religious prophet. And sometimes there were specific things that happened at one place that didn't happen at another. So, for example, they set up in Ohio for a little while and ran something. It, I don't think it was actually a bank, but it was run like a bank. Eventually it failed and bankrupted a lot of people, and... So, and there were people who were invested in it that were also non-Mormons, and that that hurt the church a lot, and they had to run pretty much out of town to avoid angry mobs from that. Uh, whereas in Nauvoo, which is in Illinois, I think that a lot of the problem was that there, all of the local leaders, all of the local judges, things like that, were all Mormon, and so trying to hold Joseph Smith accountable for things that happened in Missouri didn't happen because of interference from judges is my understanding of what happened. 
So, so, so you're trying to get to Hank's uh, point. I'm sorry, Hans, but I just I interrupted him, so I wanted to no finish the arc. So, yeah. So Hank was asking, um, you know, is is the sort of impression that Worms are very patriotic and they work in the CIA, that sort of thing. They're pro-American. Lots of American flags flying outside their houses, sort of thing. Is that true? You said it was, and I agree with that for the modern church. But you were saying there was a transition, and this is my sort of vague understanding is that because of the things we just talked about, but them getting kicked out of all these areas and eventually ending up in Utah and then having basically their own autonomous country in F in effect and fighting. I hope we get to this part. They actually fought a, a, a minor war with uh, the U S army. Um, they then transitioned to becoming um, these patriotic people we know today, but how did that happen is sort of what I was trying to get at. And you were saying around 1920 or something, and maybe yeah, you can go so into that. I, I tend to think of the church as having about three main periods. There's the period during Joseph Smith's life, and then, um, so, oh, I'm trying to remember if I can figure out what day he died. I don't have it in front of me. But he dies before 1847, and around then, and 1847 is when most of the the travel the church travels to Utah. And from that point to around 1920 is a is a second period, and then after 1920 is a third period. So um, during the second period, Brigham Young starts running the church at the beginning of that. And Joseph Smith had said things that. Um, and I don't have the wording in front of me, but that the U.S. Constitution was divinely inspired. And I've heard my dad say that over and over and lots of other people in the Mormon Church. And I think that the belief within the Mormon Church was that the federal government wasn't living up to the Constitution, that that they were always there's, loyal to the Constitution, but that the federal government was falling short, what, that never protected them. It doesn't, didn't give them their yeah. religious I mean, when, when you That's say this sort of thing to Canadians, it absolutely blows their mind. Like, there's a lot of people that can't even into the conception that there are significant portions of American society that literally, like, have a, you know, like, theocratic is not a, a sufficient uh, a descriptor, but like a, like a, a notion that your, your form of government and that the liberties granted to your citizens are literally ordained by God, as opposed to, like, the, the technocratic grants of some, you know, government God only knows where. Uh, that's uh, that's something that kind of you see the glint of fear in their eyes, which uh, you know, I, all, all props to the Mormons, honestly. I just, you know, I, I like <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like explaining that to people and seeing seeing that glint. I support the that. idea that the United States Constitution is uh, divinely inspired is something that you would see on uh, Glenn Beck's program. Oh yeah, who's a former Mormon. Yeah, no, he is a current Mormon, and he had, I don't know why I remember this, but he had this, I, and I, I'll, furthermore, I don't remember why I was watching or listening to this. I think I lived somewhere where, like, my commute involved uh, the radio head back on, but there's this guy, David Barton, who's, that's his whole thing, and he's, he's some kind of evangelical, but uh, Beck promoted him. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it, uh, a th yeah, I think Hank is right, theocracy is a very poor term to use it seemed in you find this a lot with people who aren't necessarily mormon you know a lot of normal people in the united states they regard the founding fathers uh with a lot of equal reverence to uh They're saints 
Yeah, well, with the Twelve Disciples in Jesus Christ. And it's much more common amongst, I would say, people who are not Catholic, um, you know, people who are generally of a you know, some kind of evangelical or Protestant mind. And they, you know, they have a strong reverence for the Founding Fathers, for the founding of America, for, uh, you know, the, con- the political and human concepts of liberty, of freedom, of, self- of self-expression, of self-defense. And there's a there's a belief that, well, all this is rooted in our Judeo-Christian values and so on. And I think that that is just a general cultural trend that, you know, I would say close to maybe 100 million people, maybe over 100 million people in this country have uh, at least. And, and it is pretty, pretty strong. And, and it's not bad. And I wouldn't say it veers on theocracy. I think that if you proposed theocracy to a lot of these people they would actually be very put off by that idea Uh, it's literally not i mean so it's like the roman concept of religio where it's like the the kind of guiding set of like meta level beliefs that's just kind of how we do things It, it doesn't mean that there's a particular priest that's actually in charge it's just that we have this kind of guiding understanding and uh, there can be an emergent consensus that things are not operating according to these principles, at which point, uh, you know, it's the, the line from the, uh, uh, the, the declaration of independence, uh, it's the right and the duty uh, to, uh, to overthrow uh, such a, uh, such an arrangement. And, and I so would, I would ask her, well, I'd ask her guests too to maybe clarify if, there's an element to, of this where the Mormons go the next step, however, where they, you know, they believe they don't just hold uh, the founding fathers and the twelve disciples in the same kind of reverence. They really do believe, and there is some divine working uh, behind the forming of the United States and the U.S. Constitution, and that it is a matter of religion almost. It's a matter of faith. Is that more accurate? Mormons kind of go that next logical step I, I i would say that that's definitely true for what most people i know believe but there's also a strange thing in the mormon religion where there are things people talk about and believe but that you don't find an official uh sort of doctrine from the church on their website for um so one thing that most people probably aren't aware of and i think i have the text up here somewhere there's something called the White Horse Prophecy. It's well, kind of it's, it's, it's a partial allusion to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, if, from what I gather. And Correct. It's something that most horses. people yeah, who sh- should look up at some time. Um, and it's this thing that the Mormon Church hasn't said is or is not doctrine. It's sort of been a little bit either way. Um, but it's a prophecy that some people take very seriously, particularly um, the Bundys, and it comes up in that the Bundy podcast that you had mentioned, um, that sort of the U.S. Constitution would hang by a thread and that it would be essentially the Mormons that would protect it. Um, and it's kind of a long thing, but it's, it's interesting because they really do, I think, believe that, that the U.S. Constitution is divinely inspired partially because there's no other way that that Joseph Smith could have started the church if it wasn't for that. So if, if you didn't have some degree of religious freedom, then 
you wouldn't have had the ability to follow their history of finding the golden plates and then translating them into the Book of Mormon and, and everything that's required for that. So let's talk about some of those claims that you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints makes about their special divine place in the scheme of the universe and the history of the world. Um, I, I'm by no means a scholar on this, but the major ones that seem to jump out to me is that there was a, I'm not sure if it's a temple or, but there was just some, some, something special about the North American continent. And this was in some distant time in the past, there was this war between the Lamanites and another group. And I forget which is which, but there's basically a black and a, and a white group. And it's uh, interpreted by some to be a race war. It's interpreted by others to be one about the holy versus the unholy. And then there are these plates that are apparently sort of like what uh, Moses or somebody was handed down uh, during, you know, the the period of Exodus. Or, you know, I watched the Ten Commandments. This is my basic knowledge of where those came from. So please forgive me, um, people who know more than I do on this. But it seems very analogous to sort of the the plates that were given by God to Moses, uh, to the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Uh, so this is like the the third or the the third book in the installment. So you got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the newer Testament, the Book of Mormon. And this is what uh, Joseph Smith is sort of prophesizing. And the the book that you uh, directed me to uh, no one knows my history makes mention of these plates as being bronze but at the uh, time I, were, I don't i don't he know if, he claimed sure but and i'm sure now the church has something that's in 24 carats but i mean how do we know like th this stuff you know oh, it, it strikes me as sort of like what muhammad was doing where he's basically just wandering around and he kind of proclaims he's the prophet and how do you prove this stuff? And and there was that website you mentioned also that was trying to do that. And I'll let you jump in though, because I thought this was sure. very interesting. How they're they're really trying hard to make make them make themselves as legitimate as possible as sort of a, a more recent church. Um, so please please uh, go into what you know about about that. So the the claim that was made was Joseph Smith claimed that. Uh, God, through an angel, directed him to where these gold plates were buried in a hill near where he lived. And then he translated what was on the gold plates, and that became the Book of Mormon. And then he gave the gold plates back to the angel. Um, and that you weren't allowed to look at the golden plates unless you were uh, okayed, essentially, by God. And so not very many people saw them. There are some statements in Mormon doctrine from people who were the witnesses to that. And then there's some fighting about that historically. But the gold plates aren't like a thing that anybody has at this point. So, so how accurate is, I don't know if you're familiar, but have you ever seen the South Park rendition of uh, Joseph Smith's life? I haven't. I've, I've heard some interesting things about it, but I haven't had a chance to. You, you know, about fuck the, those uh, guys. Honestly, players. it's really easy to make fun of uh, everything except for the notion of things like drawing a string around Manhattan that allows you to circumvent the will <laughs> of God. Well, one thing about the Mormon Church is that the claims Joseph Smith was making about his history and the basics of the history. In the more or in the Book of Mormon, 
is that a group of people leave Jerusalem because they're told it's going to be destroyed. They travel to North America. Some of them become evil, and when they become evil, he, God curses them with dark skin. They fight each other for a long period of time. The story gets complicated, but eventually the dark-skinned people wipe out the light-skinned people. Um, and then sort of the last light-skinned general and his son compile all the records, and that becomes the, the Book of Mormon, buried in a hill, and then Joseph Smith is guided to it later. Are the So how do they, do they interpret Native Americans as being the dark people, like the remnants yes. of the, the failed tribes from Jerusalem? That was that was specifically there were times when the Mormon Church had outreaches to Native Americans and called them by the name of of the dark skinned people in <laughs> And you know, just just to throw another monkey wrench in here, there is some amount of archaeological evidence that there was actually uh, there was settlements from both ends of the Americas. Uh there, there's a lot of archaeological um, uh, fixtures in terms of like uh, uh, the the ways that they constructed uh, tools and even some amounts of remaining genetic evidence. Aren't you, are you talking about the Clovis culture? Yes, I am. Yeah, yes. yes, yeah, yeah. There, there are. Yeah, and I think arrowheads was one of the ways in which they made these really shocking discoveries in terms of similar arrowheads to sunken regions of what was originally called Doggerland, which was this, uh, basically the British Channel. And, uh, you know, archaeological finds from that area and then archaeological finds from parts of um, the eastern North American seaboard. And they've they've kind of determined that, uh, well population flows to uh, North America are probably much more complex and all kinds of people could have come across the uh, the Bering Strait uh, a long time ago or from it, the other way as well. Th there's like a early 2000s uh, kind of instinct that a lot of people have to be like well why would that be the case but I think like uh, it, it makes a lot of sense if you kind of interpret religions on their own terms to just like kind of have the presumption that okay, assume that this was true. Is there like some glaring thing that would cause that to not be true? Because that's actually how most people interact with religions. They're raised in the faith, and you know that that is actually their default. You don't need to have some kind of weird reddit atheist like francis bacon like principle of uh atheism going into it um <clears throat> instead like you know you can take things like this as you know it's like huh maybe uh maybe history is more interesting than uh you know kind of the reddit front page would make it out to be and, and for what it's for what it's worth uh the Siberian emigres to North America, Siberia and, and the Eurasian steppe in general, uh, for a very long time was filled with people who we know from their very, in, uh, very delicately intact frozen remains under the permafrost that we found in these Kurgans, some of which go back a very long time. These people look more like the current hosts of the podcast you're listening to than uh, anyone from the Cherokee Nation. So just keep in mind that all kinds of people 
of all shapes and colors and sizes and histories lived on that step for a very long time. Don't and forget the North American giants. Yes. There's all kinds of... <laughs> Skeletons found in Wisconsin. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's a hidden kernel of truth here about the real history of North American race relations. One interesting thing is that at the time that Joseph Smith wrote or translated that document, the ideas that he was putting forth were not that strange. Um, in the area where he grew up, there were these huge mounds um, and Indian fortifications, and it was his belief about what had happened. Other people who were not Mormon had similar uh, beliefs about that there had been two people or two peoples and that there had been big wars and that these burial mounds were the results of that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like well, the prehistory of the Americas, like I, I just want to get this digression in really quickly. It, it's a lot weirder and a lot more physically prominent than you would guess. Like, I mean, just on statistical terms, probably a lot of our population that's listening to this podcast go to Serpent Mound. Like, the, these things are freaking huge. You can see them from space. There is a, a complete lack of explanation for uh, the reasons that these things were um, constructed. Um, there, There's just like, you know, there, there's a lot of weird shit in America that predates 1492. And a lot of that, uh, if you start looking into these things that I think they're... Uh, their lack of prominence is related to the lack of uh, explanation that we have for their existence. But uh, Yandex Serpent Mound Historical Site. Well, speaking of what would have informed Joseph Smith's beliefs at the time, uh, Joseph Smith was, in fact, a master mason. And there are a lot of interesting parallels in the Mormons' uh, self-constructed you know, mythologies to that of masonry itself. In many ways, Joseph Smith is, is sort of a self-appointed Hiram Abith figure for the LDS. Uh, can you talk, Dylan, much about the relationship between Masonry and Mormonism? I'm not much of an expert on Masonry. Um, the earliest knowledge I know of Masonry and Mormonism crossing over was that there was a Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo, which is kind of the, the biggest Mormon uh, town that they ever ran. Um, and I've heard, but I never saw it, obviously, that the pre-1990 uh, rituals that were done in the church were closer to some Masonic rituals than they are now. I don't, like I said, I don't know the details of that. Well, I have an, and then I have another question, uh, which is, so the Utah Territory was not admitted into the United States for about 50 years. Uh, Correct. Through, they were eventually admitted after making a declaration against polygamy. Uh, what were the reasons that went into that decision? So that history um, goes back to almost the beginning of them being in Utah. So they arrived in Utah in 1847, and then um, the territory is organized three years later. And then 10 years after they arrived, the Utah War starts which is when the federal government sent troops to Utah to install a non-Mormon governor. Um, that ended up not actually turning into a big shooting war. There's mostly skirmishes. Um, but from that point on until 
essentially the Mormons decided to give up polygamy, the federal government fought them and wouldn't give them statehood over the issue of polygamy. Why, why is that such a huge negotiating shit for the federal government? I mean, I get that it's different and weird in many people's opinion and in mine as well. I mean, it's not just that it's weird. It's sort of harmful to social dynamics if you really think it through. But um, why was that such a big deal? I mean, it seems like it'd be more like, you know, you need to be loyal to us. You need to send your, your boys to fight in our army. Like, I don't, I'm surprised to see social policy as the main goal, especially at that time. Well, well uh, you're looking at it from the view of, I think, how the, the, you know, the establishment and the spooks view the Mormons after 1920 in this third phase that Dylan is talking about, where they kind of ha adopted this live and let live mentality. You know, we'll let you do what you want, mostly, and some stuff you're going to have to keep secret. But um, as long as you work for us and as long as you play ball and you help us out where we need to, where we need your help, you can kind of get away with this. But I think that prior to that, the United States was a different country and it was run by a lot of people who were principled and the population was very different. The population didn't really like outsiders and certainly didn't like weird insiders is either. So the notion that there was this whole state where the common moral fabric of the United States was being skirted, predominantly this notion that, you know, you have one one man and one woman and that's a married couple and that's final. And that is the basis of the family. You know, that to most people was probably way too off-putting. And, I, you know, I think from the federal government's perspective, it was probably had much more to do with Placate, not maybe not placating, but acting within the common moral framework that this, the states were founded upon. And I think there's. <clears throat> oh, please answer, Dylan. No, I think there's also an element of. So in 1949, or 1849, sorry, the, the Mormons proposed the state of Deseret. And you can look up online maps of this, and it's much larger what they proposed to be their own state than what Utah ended up being. It includes most of Nevada, portions of almost every state that they border, and even includes elements of Southern California. And I think one of the issues about polygamy was that the federal government didn't want this separate people with a completely separate idea of, of what made the base unit of society right. out there, because that was more likely to be its own sovereign nation state than a state within a union. Were they also or, worried about the I, growth of population? I, I don't know if polygamy is shown. I, I never to saw that come population. up. Okay. But I do think that some people might have been aware of the fact that, you know, polygamy is it's a it's a marriage system that works well in conflict because it generates lots of unattached males that you can mm -hmm. then send off to attack the next tribe over. Yeah, I, I actually I asked had never. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I had never heard of Deseret, uh, but I was in a. I well, wandered that's into a very common Mormon thing. That their newspaper is called. A well, I know. I, I that's the thing. Until I wandered into this bookstore called Deseret Books, and oh. this very square-looking guy comes up to me, and I and then it like occurs to me where, where I have found myself. Did <laughs> <laughs> you have a name tag? I can't. It's many years ago, but I think he probably <laughs> did. Did you walk uh, in with like an open can of beer and a cigarette? <laughs> 
<laughs> a couple I of taquitos to, sticking out from your pockets. <laughs> I'm in a new city, you know. I always go into. I, I pretty much always go to every bookstore in town if I'm there long enough. So I just wandered in. But uh, I also wanted to ask about because what happened after the banning of polygamy was that you did have some who did not accept this and. This is where you have the, I guess, what you would call the fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, or I, I don't know to what extent that's a formal organization, but the, the, they're fundamentalists, which have become a source of fascination for uh, American liberals, actually, uh, especially any Trump in pop culture, if people are familiar with the program Big Love with the late Bill Paxton. Yep. And there is also the uh, there's a book written by the great outdoor writer who's a, in you know well mostly great outdoor writer uh, John Krakauer uh, who uh, wrote a book called Under the Banner of Heaven which deals with the Lafferty murders that took place in the 1980s as well as his own uh, very Reddit tier type history of uh, the Mormon uh, Church. So, so there are please. lots of splits from Mormonism. Essentially, whenever a decision back in the day was made, there'd be some split. And you can find uh, various factions back east and sort of around the Utah area that are splits from the Mormon church. Um, and I think one of the things that may have happened, and I'm, I'm not super familiar with fundamentalists because I don't really know any, and is that when the Mormon church gave in to federal demands, that would be seen as sort of God tells you to do one thing and the government tells you to do, to do another and you do what the government tells you. Some people would see that as wrong, would think that you should just fight it out, even if there's no chance of winning. Uh, hmm. But you do still – I remember well, the, seeing at least once protests of, of people um, – I don't remember exactly why, but they were on Temple Square for something to try and – argue for the fact that polygamy should be allowed again or, or something the the well the title of the book of the john krakauer book uh, is under the banner of heaven and it's derived from uh something that was said by the third president of the lds john taylor and what he had said was that god is greater than the united states and when the government conflicts with heaven we will be ranged under the banner of heaven against the government the united states says we cannot marry more than one wife and god says otherwise and and many early church leaders spoke that way and had that opinion before 1910 or so when the church finally um, sort of gave in and changed their policy – oh, no, 1904 um, – that not only was polygamy banned, but that they would excommunicate anyone who performed a plural marriage. Um, so, but it took 50, 60 years to get to that point. So all the all the stuff about secret spirit wives, I think, is the term that has been thrown around. Yeah, that was a term that I think started even back in Joseph Smith's time was a term that was used. Is is that so? You're saying that the reality is that the church has taken a hard line on that. That the the main L, the main LDS organization has taken a very strict hard line and will excommunicate you if they find you to be doing this. Yes. Uh, is that so all the the liberal prognostications about the spirit wife stuff is that really kind of made up because the church doesn't really tolerate that anymore and will act harshly if they find you doing it under the table i i don't know because i've seen things or people that i've known have made arguments that the church has sort of left the doctrine in a way that they could go back to it that they could uh. sort of 
reactivate and and like I said, I'm not super familiar with how they would do this, but at least the church policy is to excommunicate people who do polygamous marriages. But they they differentiate from doctrine and policy quite a bit because later on, if, when we get to it, when they allowed blacks to hold the priesthood, they then said that earlier that was just a policy, not doctrine, so it was easier to change. So in a que- for a question that I think Adam would be uh, interested in as well, in the event of some kind of breakup of the United States government, uh, do you see the Mormon Church, the LDS, uh, returning, uh, taking on a new new form, and the territories in which they control uh, would become some kind of theocracy, or you know, some kind of Mormon-ruled territory in which the compromises that they have had to implement in order to play ball with Uncle Sam would be rescinded? I, th- I think that there's. There are ways that you could chart a future that get to that. Um, are they very likely? That's a totally different question. But I, I think that there there is a possibility for that to happen. The church, and we can talk about this later, but is organized almost like a state in waiting. It has mm-hmm. this layered hierarchy that performs a whole bunch of functions. It has mechanisms where it could take on new functions very easily if it needed to. It doesn't have any strict rules now that exclude people, so it can sort of adopt people into the church as fast as it can convert them. It it definitely is one of the better set-up organizations to do that, should the federal government uh, implode or things get uh, somehow otherwise fall quickly, yeah. I suppose. <clears throat> I have but, some notes on that, and I, I think I'd like to talk about that a bit more later if we could. Um just to wrap up on polygamy, unless we have more, um, I, I'd once asked a friend of mine who grew up in the church and, like you, is you know no longer really active in it. But I asked him, you know, why did polygamy get started? And one of his uh, one of his points was that you know there was basically just a shortage of uh, of men due to things like war and I guess that's civil war. Um, but, uh, the one thing that I would speculate about and please fill in the blanks on this as well. Like, why did it even become a thing was Joseph Smith was obviously one of these charismatic guys who sets up what competing religions, in my opinion, would call a cult. And in his own view is a religion in, in effect. Uh, but at its core, most things that start that way have very charismatic leadership. And so in that uh, book, uh, No Man Knows My History, about Joseph Smith, uh, it, it it makes uh, many references to the fact that he was considered you know, quite handsome and uh, women were in love with him. And perhaps one of the motivations of a guy to do something like that is to obviously get some access to many, uh, many women. And maybe it was just one of the few groups that was able to Get that, uh, get that practice uh, into the in the next generation because most of these things peter out after the first leader. But one of the other things I was going to mention about the Mormons, and maybe we can do this also separately, but I think it's related to this concept, is that the Mormons seem to have a very good way of giving members of the church a sense of status. Uh, in other words, they're placed into a hierarchy. Uh, whereby they're given a role, a title, and such that they feel like they're important. And that can also give uh, status, especially to men, in terms of attracting women. And obviously one of the 
the main promises that uh, Islam gives men, uh, and they also practice polygamy, by the way, but they promise this in the afterlife, is if you don't manage to get married or have children, if you do one of these uh, insane jihad uh, acts, then you will get access to all those uh, all these virgins in the afterlife. So it, it seems kind of similar, you know, it's just sort of like a a carrot that can, seems to be dangled out to potential members. Um, but between my friend and, and what I just said, Dylan, can you maybe uh, speculate or explain why polygamy was even uh, a concept that actually uh, got some traction in the early Mormon believers? Uh, growing up in the church, what was always taught was that it was primarily a mechanism for taking care of women that that didn't have a husband around. And that does track with some of the marriages. You find people who, you know, they're older and they're married to somebody else who's well beyond childbearing age, but not always. There are other times where it clearly didn't seem like that was the case. And so I think, you know, uh, the uncharitable version towards the church is closer to what you're describing. Because you do see this almost everywhere that I've looked where you have a young person who says they're hearing messages directly from God. Polygamy usually is something that comes up at that point. But usually those organizations completely implode. The Mormon church being run by particularly Brigham Young after Joseph Smith died, somehow managed to survive and and travel out west and sort of stabilize, even though it still performed polygamy. It didn't get out of hand like it can other places. I would consider joining the LDS for Chloe Savinji. Mormon? <laughs> uh, she, 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 big love. But uh, I, I know that, so speaking of uh, the fundamentalists, we do know that it is still practiced to this day, the polygamy in the United States. Do you happen to have any numbers on it? I mean, it's obviously going to be a difficult count to make because, you know, for obvious reasons. But do you have I any don't, idea? And I, I'm the the little bit of awareness I have of, of the fundamentalists is that most of them are not on paper, or at least not on paper correctly. So it, it would be hard to get hard data on them because the state doesn't realize that they're married at all. Like all, a lot of the times, all of those women are on paper, uh, single mothers, and then qualify for welfare, and other organizations do the same thing. But um, I, I don't know. It's it's very small, and the Mormon Church tries to distance itself from them as much as possible, just because it's seen, even now, as being so far beyond the pale. Maybe we can talk about some of the church organization and a little bit of the history during at least the... Um, the second phase, uh, when Brigham Young was eff effectively running the church, um, I had actually happened to see a television series that portrayed him as sort of a, a, a background character. And but what it did was it it showed just the sheer level of solidarity is probably the wrong word, but it it, it almost looked like a a bunch of IBM salesmen, obviously in a completely different era, but the type of organization that IBM was known to have in the 50s, these were the organization men. They all wore the same color suit. They all had a, uh, a title. They all had uh, the, the company's slogans memorized. They would all you know, exercise every morning. It just seemed to have a very militaristic yet business-like 
culture, and again, this is just from you know from something from television, but uh, that most other groups in that frontier area seemed to lack because most of the people were just homesteaders that were out there on their own or perhaps in sort of a, a, a very loosely affiliated wagon train. But the Mormons, on the other hand, they're building forts. They've got you know lumber businesses. They're, they're farming. And I think that's really, to this day, one of the main reasons why they're so successful is because they do have that clannishness that is structured in a way that benefits the members and distributes it somewhat broadly such that people are uh, willing to work as hard as they do to make things successful. But this is just an outsider's well, perspective of things. What are I, what I, are the formal obligations that a Mormon would have to other Mormons? Um, well, I would first say that's very accurate way of putting it, Adam. But as far as formal obligations... There are obligations as a Mormon that you're supposed to follow certain rules, you know, not drink alcohol, not smoke, um, various things like that. Um, one thing that happens in the Mormon church, and this is probably something we talk about a little bit more later, is that there are what's called callings. And a calling is just, it's sort of like a job that's assigned to someone, or, and that could be like an, a reoccurring thing, or just a temporary, like a calling to do one particular job once. And that system is something where church leaders will come to you and they will say, you know, will you accept a calling to do X? And if you tell them no, you are, in a sense, telling God no. Like, all of those callings are derived from God. And that allows the church to, to, you, to get people to do all kinds of things because they're all sort of pulling together at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a church historians that actually try to organize this, but I would be fascinated to see some of the, uh, the callings. I mean, in a sort of corporate setting, you call it like basically uh, mission directives or something that are, are chosen to be assigned to the people. But it, it would be really interesting to me to see how those, those groups were, were managed for lack of a, a more eloquent way of putting it. Uh, but I don't it just know that there. Be, yeah, I don't know there'd even be records of it back in the day. I mean, I just remember growing up in the church, and people always had callings. I mean, every adult I knew had a calling to do this or to do that. Usually, to teach a Sunday school class or shovel snow at the church on Sundays or something. But mm -hmm. almost everything seems to run on that which is fairly effective because it means that everybody, you know, if you don't show up to church on Sunday, you just don't feel like going that day. You're letting somebody else down and you're, you're part of mm -hmm. something almost in the same way that you are in the military where, you know, if you don't, you don't pull your weight, if you don't keep up with the group, if you don't, you know, if you fall asleep on guard duty, you're not, you're not contributing to the group. Um, yeah. Very similar dynamic. I thought. Can you, uh, discuss uh, broadly or maybe give examples of what is discussed in church um, is it like you know most churches where they basically read the Bible and they talk about you know what it means or is it actually more business-like or related to the Mormon church itself or because it's a little bit of a closed-off community I would I would assume and that you can't just walk in there I've never actually tried I've been inside Mormon oh, no, temples you can, you can. but I've never been in the church service so 
Um, can, um, can I add, add one more thing before you answer this question on this subject of obligations? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I have heard that the last words of Joseph Smith were, is there no help for a widow's son? Which is, of course, what a Mason would say when they need yeah, aid. Right, right. I've, I've heard that from different people, and then I've heard his last words were something else I don't remember. Um, I, I've heard Because that is reports. a similar model as far as, uh, well, th this is kind of what I was getting at, because to be honest, I, I do know more about Masonry than I do about Mormonism, and the fact that uh, he was a Mason was always very fascinating to me. And Masons do, do have uh, obligation within reason to lend aid to uh, other Masons. And within the Mormon Church, like I said, I don't remember ever specifically being told that you had an obligation to give anything to other Mormons, but every Mormon always would. Um, you know, if, if say, someone's house burned down in the ward, and the ward's like a, a, the smallest local organization, they would always have someplace else to live. They would have people who would be cooking meals for them. If somebody um, lost a job, then other people would come to try and make sure they had enough to eat and could pay their bills. And they sort of always took care of their own. Um, and it was at least something informal. If there's something formal that happens, it's certainly possible. And I just didn't know about the, the formal level because it happens later in life. Well, gotcha. correct me if I'm yeah, wrong, or at a but... Higher level, uh, I suppose, too, could be the case. But yes. Well, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you were talking earlier about um, LDS having a very uh, strong organizational structure and um, pretty much its own bureaucracy at this point. They have a an internal welfare system as well, don't they? And there's yes, they do. There's there's a there's a strong sense of contributing to basically a. Uh, a uh, like a, a a single payer solution for a lot of uh, a lot of people in the church that they can tap into if they need help, and that's part of this. Um, well, it's not tithing, it, and I don't think you call it dues. What is so the exact exact uh, term for giving to the church to then be utilized for others in the church? So there's tithing, which people do pay, which is ten ah, okay. percent. Um, but tithing is is sort of the general fund of the church. Got and it. so that can go to just about anything. Um, so, like for example, if you're you have a new group of Mormons somewhere and they need a building, the church can just show up with a few million dollars and build a building, um, which other churches would struggle to do. Right. But for the actual welfare program, they have a second offering system called fast offerings, and that that money goes to a specific system, which then local bishops administer, and someone who's needy can go to the bishop and say, you know, I just need some help. And the fast offering system pays for storehouses to have food and local, just sort of whatever makes sense for a house to have wherever you're at. Uh, but generally that's not given away as just, oh, you need it, here you go. The, the bishop will work with the person who needs it for them to do some kind of work and then be given it. So at least when I remember uh, it being used that I knew about, most of the time the people who cleaned to the church would be members who were poor or had lost a job or something like that. And some of the cleaning or maintenance for the church buildings would be done by people to earn that. So, And that tracks really well with most Mormons are very against something like socialism. Yeah, but earning it, it makes a difference to them. It, it uh, Part of it strikes me um, – as similar to a lot of the solutions that uh, you know, 
the turn of the century, um, uh, traditionalist Catholics like Hilaire Belloc proposed for dealing with the problems of industrial, you know, industrial society, and as an alternative to socialism and so on, was this sort of quasi, um, uh, almost corp, uh, corporate in the old sense network that had elements of of guildism and, and elements of um, uh, solidarity and self-reliance and you know in, internal uh, self-mechanisms for help and growth and things like that it it in a lot of ways it seems like the church uh, you know to Adams or to a point that you I think you made earlier that there, there is a path for them to chart uh, towards a, a self-reliant structure in like a in a post federal United States where they would be able to stimulate job growth for their people. They could stimulate welfare programs. They, I, I read recently, it made a lot of waves. They have uh, $100 billion basically saved up in the in the piggy bank. Yeah, that's, that's what I was an allegation up. that was made. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems as though that they, they are very much prepared, and I, I did some research for the show on um, a lot of their corporate holdings, and there have been – uh, I'm, I'm certainly no Mormon fan, but I've always found it odd how how many stories are written about Mormon corporate holdings and Mormon corporate power, uh, mostly in a lot of uh, kind of center-left mainstream media. Um, but it, it's pretty detailed, and it, it typically goes into vast real estate holdings, um, a lot of agricultural holdings. They also yeah. own their own— They have a company uh, called Agricultural Reserve that yep, basically— they, they have, its own uh, like food production. So it seems yeah. like the church, it, the body itself, has its own uh, real estate group, construction companies, publishing houses, internet, uh, genealogical facilities. You know, vast kind of sprawl of different industries. And then there's also Mormons practicing Mormons who are tied to the church that own these businesses themselves or are powerful executives at companies that could then be utilized uh, as part of a you know wider uh, corporate network. Um, it seems as though the, the church really is in a position where it could, in theory, create its own economy for its own people across multiple states and, you know, uh, help them when they're poor and stimulate jobs, get them educated, find them work, you know, all that sort of thing, give startup capital that uh, they're very capable of doing that um, for a, a very, I mean, that Last I checked, Mormons are about one point something percent of the population. One point four, one point six. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah uh, smaller than uh, the Jewish population in the United States, but they're very much capable of of keeping that portion of the United States, you know, very well enriched and productive, uh, if necessary. They certainly well, they're, have the, the means. Growing a lot faster than the Jews do. Yeah, well, they have the, the means and the and the connections, and then certainly the the venture capital to, to do so if they wanted. I mean, that, yeah. my, my I've actually met several when I, Mormon when I heard that they had $100 billion saved up was, well, that's that's a rainy day fund. That's 100%. Well, you know, if, if something goes really bad, you know, the church is able to invest that money right away and stimulate its own economy. Well, you're Possibly. discussing invites comparisons also to the evangelicals because what you have here with this hierarchically uh, the LDS a hierarchical institution that is, I thought the description of a state in waiting is very interesting. 
and they can put money towards the future and towards their you know their communities in a way that with the evangelicals it's just you know buying a fourth home for john Hagee or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting because there's another idea within the church and i can't really think of the best way to describe it they I've heard it called different things, but the idea is that generally you should, if you have extra, give all of your extra over to the church. You know, so um, obviously Mitt Romney doesn't quite follow that, but but lots of other people do. And the idea of like a church leader having, you know, a big fancy house is it's a little disgusting, I think, to most people who are Mormon. Like like they. Just would think see that as just being inherently wrong. Hmm. So there, well, there's a general. This is uh, leading sure. back. Well, I just want to quickly say so. It seems that there's a general cultural mindset of kind of a, a stark middle class outlook. You, know, you don't. You want to be successful. You want to have property. You want to build, make your own way. But you don't want to um, be seen as being um, greedy. And you don't want to be seen as being ostentatious, that kind of outlook. Something like that. Something that you want to do well. And if you drive around uh, Utah, for example, you will see a lot of nice houses with very nice vehicles in front of them. But you don't want to do significantly better than all the other people in your neighborhood. Got it. You, that, 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 that To do that and to stand out in that way would be sinful in some way. And similarly, to have neighbors living next to you who were doing very poorly, that, that you would have a responsibility to help them. Even if no one sort of um, told you specifically, but there's just this overriding ethos that that would be wrong somehow in a situation that needs to be fixed. Got it. If I can jump in, and my internet is um, spasming a little bit, so I apologize if you can't hear me quite well, but... One of the things I was asking before was uh, how outsiders are sort of allowed into the church, and I was curious about what maybe a typical church service is like and compare it to some of the more mainline ones. Uh, but, but as I was listening to this, I was thinking also, as you don't want to outshine your neighbor by leaps and bounds within the Mormon community, I have to notice, though, that the Mormons in many ways are outshining their non-Mormon uh, fellow citizens in the country. Uh, and, you know, obviously it depends on what group you're talking about. If you're talking about high caste Hindus working in Silicon Valley, that's just not what I mean. I just mean sort of your, maybe your average white guy or Appalachian person who's not doing very well. Uh, the, the church is doing better. And so it kind of leads me to my next question. If, if you kind of integrated to my other question about like how the church within the church walls actually operates during Sunday. Um, how does the church, uh, the, the, uh, the laity, how do they view themselves in relation to non-Mormons? Uh, do they feel like that they're, I mean, clearly, you know, that the families are more intact financially that you probably, you know, are doing a little bit better than the average uh, Joe outside the church. So how does that dynamic factor into how they perceive themselves and how do they interact within the church as well um, during Sunday? Um, At least for during Sunday, you can go to any church that meets on any Mormon church that meets on Sunday and just ask when they meet and you can go and sit and listen to sermons like anybody else. They'll probably 
want to know who you are and be very friendly and try to invite you back, but it's not closed to the public or anything. Um, and my experience between regular church as a Mormon and all the other Protestant variations I've tried over the years was that they're very similar. It's just that in Protestantism you had a professional paid pastor who would give sermons, and in the Mormon church you would typically have uh, just members of the congregation would be asked to give what they call talks, which are pretty much like a sermon, and they would prepare for and then give the the talk in church. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, which is another one of the interesting things about the Mormon Church uh, organizationally is that the local church building that you might drive by in Utah doesn't have anyone who works there. No professional full-time staff, which means that they're collecting all of that tithing and then not turning around and paying a huge workforce for all of those buildings. So where where okay, there obviously must be a headquarters then. And I'm, this is another question. Um, but it just, it is striking to look at those buildings and see, I mean, some might consider them gaudy, even some might consider them just very, um, ornate. I I don't know what other words I could use to describe them, but they're very unique. Uh, they're a lot more decorative. There's sort of a halfway point perhaps between a Protestant church and a Catholic church. Although the Catholic churches typically look a little bit more, at least the older ones, they look a little bit more, uh, traditional and, and using stonework and things like that. The Mormon churches are there's a lot of gold usually, um, so that that to me is is a little bit ostentatious. But <clears throat> haven't been really inside many of them, so I couldn't tell you exactly how they all look. Uh, but going back to my main question, you know, how do the the Mormons, you know, the the sort of laity, the normal people, you know, in the pews, view themselves as opposed to sort of the guy who's you know, lost his job out in Ohio and, you know, the plant closed down and, you know, now he's just, uh, he's struggling to fight his drug addiction or something like that. Like, do they just view him as a lost soul or do they, do they think about in, in more material terms about like, he's just not organized. He needs to be working with, you know, with the group kind of thing. Like I'm curious about that mentality. I think the Mormon church, at least from what I remember of, of my family in that standpoint was that, Someone who was outside the church who needed help, they would typically say that they needed they needed the church more. And so if that person joined the church, well, then now they're someone who the church is more willing to help. And so that I think that's part of their view towards welfare to non-members. The church does do quite a bit of humanitarian aid to non-members, but that does tend to be that sort of telescopic philanthropy overseas. And and is that with the expectation that that person will then become a Mormon also? I think that there's a little bit of that. I think that especially overseas, there's this, uh, by doing that sort of work, it smooths things over with mm. the local uh, government or just local institutions so that when the missionaries come in, it doesn't upset people as much because they remember the Mormons as the people who dropped off a plain load of food when things were bad. And from what Which I understand, why, they're the, effective at- the, the huge uh, sort of growth market for Mormonism, a lot of their recruiting comes from uh, Latin America currently. Yes, and before that it would have been uh, like the South Pacific, and they've, they've done very well in different areas in the past. 
that were outside. Uh, yeah, the I believe States. Argentina uh, has been a success for them. Mm-hmm. I always thought that the Mormon architecture, though, looked a lot like Minas Morgul, but uh, I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> could you could you uh, give us more context? What is that from? Some fiction or what is that? It's from Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings. Rings, man. Come on, what is this? <laughs> I thought oh, the light on the uh, Salt Lake Temple. It would kind of be similar. The thing about the Look. architecture is that church buildings and temples are very different. So temples they see as being houses of the Lord. So everything in them is is much more ornate and very. I don't say fancy, but it it. I've only been in a few of them, and it really is impressive when you walk inside. Whereas a regular church building, most of those are a little larger and perhaps in some ways nicer than most of the Protestant buildings I've been in, but they're they're comparable for a regular church meeting house. So what regions of the country would you say the church is strongest in? Obviously the Southwest with Utah, but do they have a lot of growth elsewhere? I would say mostly it still centers, at least in the United States, in the Utah and surrounding areas. So, for example, southern Idaho, particularly, yeah. um, I guess, the east half is as high, as high a pro- percentage of Mormons as in Utah. And there are little isolated segments, uh, parts of California, lots of Nevada, just the, the bordering states to that. It did seem, so I lived for a little while in Washington, D.C., and I was very surprised at the number of Mormons. How is that dynamic, by the way, when you're no longer, well, you would have to actually define what that means to no longer be part of the church. I assume that just means you don't attend you know, regular service and you're not really in touch with uh, leadership. But how is that dynamic between you grew up in it, but no longer you're, you're engaged in it and you're meeting active members uh, do, do they? Is there more trust? Is there less trust? I, I've always been curious about that. It can be a little strange. Um, for me, it's easier because I don't have any animosity towards the church, um, but many people do. You know, sort of the Reddit tier ex Mormon mindset where the church is the evilest thing ever for whatever reason. And I think that when when a current member meet someone and finds out that they used to be in the church, they're kind of feeling out, trying to figure out, like, okay, how how against the church is this other person? And once they kind of get the gauge that, you know, you don't hate them for being a member, and you don't hate the church for existing, then things are more or less fine. They treat you as if you're any other non-member. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that some people I know who are ex-Mormons do have still that network that they can call upon or work with uh, to their advantage, frankly. And I don't know how the conversation proceeds, though, whereby they they either sort of gloss over the fact they don't exactly, you know, drop into the church, or maybe they're just, you know, in a different area so it doesn't come up. I don't know. But it, it seems like you can still make it work to a positive, you know, uh, as opposed to a negative. But it, it, as you say, I assume there's definitely some awkwardness you, have, you must have to smooth over. Um, and I am curious now that you mentioned it, uh, these Reddit tier ex-Mormons, as you put it, what would be their gripe exactly? And the term you used is pretty strong to call the church the most evil thing ever. Why would they say that? I honestly don't know. I have a hard time getting inside 
that mindset. I think there's lots of things that could get people to dislike the church that much. Um, well, how about women especially? Because I've met some ex-Mormon women, and sometimes it's you know more obvious than not if they don't tell you. But uh, I, I can assume it's basically the standard feminist talking points uh, or a variation on that. But for the men, it's also an interesting question as well. But maybe you can break it down if that helps. Um, yeah. The, one would be that the Mormon church still holds to a lot of what you might call traditional views on things. And people who have sort of adopted the more modern mindset of things just see the church as being wrong about that. And that, I think, compounds with other things. Another thing that people tend to dislike the church over is the church does hold people to standards. You know, if you drink alcohol, if you do various things you're not supposed to do, the church leadership will come to you and tell you you're messing up, you're doing things wrong, stop, and then potentially... And I've I've heard of cases where... People have to uh, apologize in public for their misbehavior. And I won't go into specifics, but I, I know people that have had to do that. Um, right. I don't know. Yeah. W- which is very powerful. I mean, it's basically social shaming that keeps people behaving in a certain way, right? right. And, uh, and for good or for worse, you know, you may, you may appreciate it or you may chafe under that. Right. And that's another thing that people sometimes might just not be able to live up to that standard. And then part of leaving the church, I think for them includes some level of shame that they just can't quite deal with. And other people do have semi-legitimate or really legitimate reasons for leaving the church. Church leadership did something that, that was harmful. I've heard of accusations of, of people who, were mistreated and then the church covered it up. Uh, I don't know if that was true or not, but I just heard of accusations with regards to that. I could see a lot of the Reddit tier mentality coming from just the social dynamics. If people end up going to college at, at non-Mormon college or something, and they, they feel that, that now they've been deprived of a relatable social life to the people who they're now around. Right. And there's a lot of disjoint between the ideas that the Mormon church has, particularly with regards to the family and what you might see on Netflix or at any college campus at this point, which, you know, if, if that continues, it becomes really difficult to have one foot in both worlds. Yeah, you have to pick one. Yeah, and there's many right. such cases of that with other, you know, niche communities um, encountering the, you know, the cosmopolitan society. Um, yeah, and Mormons don't do... Um, anything like the way the Amish do. So, you know, a Mormon family is going to watch TV and Netflix and and get all of those cultural messages and then go to church or go to other uh, services where they're going to receive the Mormon ideas. And as those conflict more and more, I think it is difficult for young people to know what to do going forward. Well, there there were many attempts, and I'm still this. I'm sure this is still an ongoing process, as is you know anything in a actual living, breathing civilization. You're going to have change, but uh, my understanding is that the uh, the 70s were a particularly interesting time in the church because the feminist, the second wave of feminism, I think, was really causing a lot of trouble for some of the the leadership in terms of attracting or retaining membership even. And so they seem to have relaxed things 
um, in that time period. And I think the trend is probably continuing. But one recent interesting point of example is that when the Boy Scouts, which the Mormons have uh, traditionally been very active in, uh, when the Boy Scouts admitted girls into the Boy Scouts, I mean, this is, so I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout and this is, this is actually extremely offensive to me. It's, but I won't get into that, but it, it's, uh, I can speak to it though from some experience. When they were trying to allow gay scoutmasters, it was always like, what, what, why, what, wait a minute, who's pushing this? And it was always some outside threat group. And so the Boy Scouts are obviously a separate topic, but the fact that they were uh, promoters of more traditional values, uh, I think, was why the Mormons were supportive of that group and putting their sons in it in particular. But now I think the Mormons have actually been willing to fight against a little bit of that and I think remove their official sanctioning of the Boy Scouts. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it's interesting to watch the church make these policy decisions vis-a-vis the, the broader culture as a whole. Um, and it, from my reading and, and reading your writing in particular, Dylan, it seems like the, the presidents play a large role in deciding the course of the church. So can you talk about how their sort of doctrine works in relation to, uh, you know, uh, in this world, but not of it, kind of thing. Like, how do they how do they manage that interplay? Well, as far as managing that, it's they they use that exact term a lot. I remember hearing that many times growing up. But one strange thing is is that when I've attended Protestant churches, typically you go to church for an hour or two on Sunday, and that's about it. Whereas when I was growing up in the Mormon church, we would go to church for three hours on Sunday. Um, we would have sort of like a, a miniature church service in the home just with our family uh, oh, wow. one night, and then, or yeah, one night a week. And then we had a young men's group, which was really a, like a Boy Scout meeting, but that had religious elements to it as well. And then we would have what was called visiting teaching, which was somebody else, another uh, a couple of men from the church would visit with us and essentially like internal missionary work. And, and so we got a lot more uh, internal church cultural messaging at that time, as well as the church makes its own um, movies and television programs about its history and things like that. And I remember, at least in our house growing up, we weren't allowed to watch television except for uh, church programs or I think Channel Four, which is like a nature channel kind of thing, on Sundays. This and so th- this it, is very interesting. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I had no, much no, to say about this. Well, um, I thought it was but, very interesting that you said that you, you watched uh, uh, prog- that most Mormons are allowed to watch programming, you know, uh, Netflix and in mainstream popular culture. Uh, when I'm trying to understand a, a religion or culture, I always look to their art and. Uh, I still am not aware of, I haven't put too much effort into looking, but you know, I'm not aware of any great Mormon art. Is there such thing? I wouldn't say that there's great Mormon art in sort of the traditional European sense, but they get closer than most other uh, sort of American peoples in things like the temple. Um, some of the temple and some of the areas around Temple Square in Washington, or not in uh, Salt Lake City, have really 
impressive visual things. And they do have their own, uh, like I said, film where they have their own history, but it's it's not what I would call great art yet. Yeah, I remember growing up. Um, you know, I, I don't. I wasn't really, really young, but you know, old enough to still be interested in watching cartoons or something on Saturday. And I would uh, occasionally see these cartoons that were talking about uh, these people in in America, like a long time ago. And I wasn't old enough to understand this was the Mormon Church putting this out. But uh, I don't know. I've I've personally never found the imagery that has been broadcast in most uh most formats regarding christianity to christianity to be all that uh, enticing but uh th- this wasn't anything better than that I-, I would say it was basically just a guy you know wearing a robe and he's walking around and kind of looks like jesus he's got long hair and um it definitely wasn't transformers it definitely wasn't gi <laughs> joe it was a little boring to be to be blunt uh so that was that was the state of the art um Literally, I guess at the time, and I guess uh, I mean, if they put out any movies, they're of note or anything, anything like that not that we might that, note. Not yeah. that I know the name of. I remember one particular film that's all about the construction of the Salt Lake Temple, and I must have watched it over a hundred times. And if my mom turned it on, I could probably quote everything from it. But for some reason, I can't think of the name of it. Um, but it it's mostly all stuff that they produce that focuses around church history um things like that there is some good material there though like especially you know the frontier and the the migration and fighting you know with the the government and the indians i'm sure i mean you could make some pretty good films out of that and i don't know if the church itself would be interested in that but I, i i bet you hollywood would if they weren't uh, you know run by you know non-mormons for uh, a, a somewhat imprecise way of putting it but uh, a lot of very interesting history i would i would argue that has a lot of oh, potential oh very much so the the church and i remember hearing a lot about the church history but it was always sort of reading or being told stories about it not as much in things like film um, but they really could make some amazing stories given the sorts of things that the church has gone through. I think that one big problem the church has, and if you go through and read the church's website, this comes out a lot, is that they are a little, I think, cautious about trying to portray the church in the right light. And they wouldn't, there are things that happened in the church history that you can't shy away from, that there are records from that would make people a little upset about things that happened in history. So, for example, the the story that I heard of the Utah War growing up favored the church's view and sort of papered over other elements that I only heard about later after leaving the church, which are still interesting, but you'd have to include to tell the complete and to tell a, a really engaging story. Well, there is the famous, also the the massacre, the uh, Mountain Meadows massacre in the late 1850s. Yes, and, and Hollywood did one. make a film Thanks. about that. Yeah, called the September Dawn. But uh, I imagine, I mean, the, in that they implicate uh, Brigham Young in the massacre itself. Uh, do you have any? Have you researched that much and have an opinion on on that event and what really took place? I've read a little bit of it. The thing that I've noticed about that and every other event that essentially is like that is that either side makes these claims about things that 
it's hard to find anybody who seems like they're unbalanced. Almost everyone who, who is investigating it or writing a history about it seems like they have a very strong bend to attack or defend the church. Um, and so it makes it hard to sort of take people seriously when it, it, that's so often what you see in their writing. But at the time, the Mormon church had just gone through decades of being attacked by outsiders. And there was this view, I think, within the church, particularly in those years, that they were a separate people who other people who came there who weren't converts right away were probably enemies and should be dealt with that way. And that could easily lead to things escalating far faster than they might otherwise. Do we uh, do we want to talk about the Bundy family? Oh, but maybe we talk about race first and close on Bundy. Do you want to talk? About, <laughs> we never did get to race. Sure. Oh, on yeah. Uh, well, okay. So the uh, the LDS prohibited uh, Negroes from membership. Is that correct? So they prohibited Negroes from holding the priesthood in the church, which is not quite the same thing as membership. Um, but close. Essentially, would disqualify um, males from uh, any sort of church leadership, and they didn't allow Negroes in the temple, which then would mean, as far as Mormons are concerned, only marriages that last are temple marriages. And so if you can't get into the temple, you can't get what Mormons consider a real marriage. And they did that until 1978. What I find interesting about this is we've talked a little bit about, we talked about briefly Trey Parker and Matt Stone's uh, you know, Book of Mormon, which is a big, is a huge hit. And everyone's talking about this. It's a very Reddit thing, as Hank uh, mentioned. Uh, but of all the people, you know, poking fun at Mormons and all the criticisms of Mormons, I actually, that was the last one I ever heard. And I didn't hear that from, you know, liberal critics. It's strange how they've been actually fairly effective at sleep, sweeping that under the rug from my perspective. There's a few strange things with the history of that. So um, no one seems entirely sure how it started. And the church claims that there were some blacks that were allowed into the church during Joseph Smith's time. I can't remember the exact name, but there was a couple um, that were. And then the accusation is that it started during Brigham Brigham Young's time, but not why. No one seems to know why that was done, which is always strange to me because that didn't line up with at least what I remember being told as a kid. You know, what I was told as a kid growing up was that um, black skin was tied to the curse of Cain, and that's why. Um, but now the church Based. says that that's, not, that, that that's not the actual... Um, doctrine, and maybe it wasn't ever along, but that's what I remember being told, which I know to me always made sense. I mean, it's going to upset some people, but it just seemed logical. I don't think it'll upset our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but I imagine I'll end up in a re education camp for it, anyways. Um, it just seemed uh, Are you aware not- of the reaction, if any? I'm sure there was some in private. Uh, there was actually. Perhaps as a sort of a brief prelude to uh, when we talk about the Bundys, uh, there was a clip that there was a hot mic or something that uh, I think it was uh, Clive and Bundy. He was quoted as effectively saying, 
and, and he says the N-word, and, you know, they were better off during slavery, you know, compared to how their family structure is messed up by welfare. This is actually somewhat of a not hot. It's not the Thomas Soul take. <laughs> I know that's exactly what I was sort of trying to get at, but you know, <laughs> it really it, is. It was. I remember that too, Adam. I, I remember that because yeah. they were they were trying to pull out everything they had on this guy uh, when that was happening, yeah, and yeah. that's exactly why they're playing that, of course. But the um, no, the question was, you know, other than, and, and he's arguably somewhat off in the middle of nowhere, so I wouldn't call him a mainline Mormon for no other reason than just simple geography. But um, what was do you think? Uh, if you don't, you know, know firsthand, but just would you speculate was the reaction after seventy eight, the revelation of priesthood is what I what I have here, nineteen seventy eight mm-hmm. revelation of priesthood, when that uh, admittance of uh, blacks into the church happened, what was the reaction in the the, the Mormon, uh, you know, community uh, by the the non leadership? I don't remember ever hearing any kind of uh, outpouring of people who were angry about it. Uh, there were some fundamentalists that weren't really part of the church that tried to raise some kinds of, of issues about it. But I think that for most Mormons, when that came about, the main culture of America had already gotten to the point, you know, the, the civil rights thing had been quite a while ago, really. Um, and that wasn't seen as being a big problem. And the other big thing to remember about most Mormons is that most Mormons have almost no real contact with with African Americans or diversity, other than maybe Indian tribes, um, I remember I only saw two black people growing up uh, my entire life. Like until I joined the army, it was just you just never run into them. So There's Thomas Sowell and the other guy, yeah, the one who was on the football team. Yeah, that was it. It was. There's Eddie Murphy, so, yeah, the charming guy from Saturday Night Live, and you know, well, you see them on right, TV. Watch TV. Yeah. But, you know, you wouldn't see them in the same way that you might see them if you were, say, stationed to the rural south. Um, yeah, right. right. And, and so that different experience, I think that that makes people in the Mormon faith and just people out west in general in rural areas a little more susceptible to the uh, sort of corporate media's portrayal of people. You know, if you, yeah. you see – because people who live out west don't fall for the – uh, wise elder Native American thing very much because they've been to Indian, Indian reservations. They know what it's mm. like. Um, yeah. And the same thing, people I think in the South may fall for the the you know wise Indian elder thing a little better, but not so much on on other racial stories because they've seen what reality is like, yeah. especially on the <clears throat> sort of lower socioeconomic end where all those problems come out. Well, how how does the church today? Um, Forget officially, just you know, in private conversation. How would you say most Mormons view the continued diversity drive of the Western Empire? I mean, it's 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 all sort of the same culture at this point. It's merging together. It's an Americanized culture uh, for the most part. But what what do you think? Uh, or what do you hear from your average Mormon? And, and I could speak to my own experience, but you would, I would assume you know much more about this than I do. W- what is the private conversations about this push for more diversity? Most that I know don't openly speak about diversity as being a bad thing, probably for the same reasons most people don't. I know a few mm-hmm. people who have 
um, shall we say, more TRS views on all of it. Um, but that leads to other interesting questions because in the Mormon faith, you're supposed to be able to accept everyone as potentially sort of a church member. And that kind of conflicts with some other ways of saying things. Um, It's hard to really describe, but most of the resistance I see to what you might call globo homo is not on the immigration thing, or if it is, it's sort of about like, oh, they're going to take our jobs or they commit crime, not, not, a deeper racial level of, of problem with it. But you can see how much uh, Utah supported Trump and not yeah. uh, this McMuffin or whatever his name is. Right. So, but why, why was that? I mean, obviously, you know, McMullen was put into basically swing Utah to, uh, to defeat Trump. I mean, that's the sort of basic analysis that I can offer at least, but what was, do you think, the reason for supporting Trump over somebody like Hillary Clinton in Utah? Is it just the, because he's not really a social conservative. Like That's my first question, you know, about that. But what, what do you think drove them to to do that? For, for some of that I know, it was just to sort of hold your nose and vote for him because that's what you have to. A lot of people that I know that are Mormon and live yeah. out in the sticks like I do see someone like Hillary Clinton as being... Um, about the worst thing that could possibly happen, you know. Because, I mean, I agree with you, but like, what are your reasons for, for that? Um, well, for us, at least where I live, everyone that I know is pretty well aware of Waco, and to them, when they hear the the name Clinton, the next okay. thing in their mind is a burning building, and right. it's easy to imagine that burning building is your house or something like that, and. That really well, still stands out among a lot of people I know. So then maybe we could talk about the Bundys now. I think that was very much driving their push against the government. And again, this is not necessarily mainstream Mormons, but they do come from that history, I would argue, if you go back far enough. And I think they do have some things in common. Um, oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. So I, I listened to that excellent podcast. It was put out by uh, Oregon Public Radio. I would never be caught dead listening to something like that, <laughs> not for this for this topic. But the presenter is, you know, your basic NPR type. Um, I forgot her name, but it's uh, she did a. I mean, I, I assume the Bundys knew who she was when they sh- when she showed up, and they're doing their best to sort of paint paint their case in a positive way. But you know, I hope they weren't misled by. You know, her particular bias um, because I've I grew up with women like that I know I know that type to the T it's the sort of cosmopolitan liberal that is out to uh, find fault with your your skin tone and your your gender and and everything that uh, you were born with and blame all her problems on it uh, but to be fair she was I thought a fairly good journalist she organized her questions very well the presentation was was well done um, but you know there is that bias. That's all I'm sort of saying about my initial reactions. But the um, it was called Bundyville, and it was basically about the Bundy standoff that started in Nevada, then eventually ended up in Oregon at the Wildlife Reserve. Uh, but the Bundyville actually has uh, a name derived from an actual community that the Bundys set up in 
I think it, they called it the Strip. It was this region of desert. It's very inhospitable, probably even more so than the Salt Lake region, which with all the mounds and the tributaries of the rain and all that. Uh, th- this area is extremely arid. It's in the. It's like in Arizona, uh, and it borders Nevada and Utah. And so you're talking really harsh environments uh, where growing things is tough, even ranching is tough. Uh, and they had they'd set this up uh, at, w- at one point uh, in the last hundred years, and they they made a go of it where they had a church building, and there were probably a hundred or so people there. But eventually it was abandoned, and then the Mundy the Bundys come from that that clan that was originally striking out in that area, where they ended up now in Nevada, where they have a 160 acre ranch they own, and then what they do is that they send um, or they they claim to own all these cattle that are roaming public lands that is managed by the Bureau of Land Management, uh, and the the beef if I'm just kind of sort of cutting to the chase of this is that in 1993. The BLM passed some environmental protection uh, for the the turtle or the tortoise, the desert tortoise. And the problem was that the cows were basically eating the same food that the tortoise was. And so the cows were basically just, you know, out-competing the tortoise and the tortoise was was dying uh, as a result. And so what the, the government did... It was they basically restricted the, the period of time in which the uh, ranchers, but at that point it, it was effectively just the Bundys because most people had just given up that the land is not very productive. Um, but they basically said that the time the ranchers can ranch is limited by three months, so they reduced it. Uh, and I don't know the climate that well, but in certain regions, three months can be like half your season. It depends on you know when the cattle are able to actually eat food because winter can sometimes screw things up. Um, so that was a big thing, and the Bundys basically stopped paying their uh, their permit, uh, their cattle grazing fees, which you know is interesting to hear how it was priced. It was basically a dollar per cow, which to me sounds pretty cheap. A uh, dollar per month, I should say, per per cow. Um, but if you dig into ranching and how it's, how it works, it's, um, not necessarily the most lucrative business. You know, obviously you have to manage, uh, the herd, you have to make sure, uh, you can round them up and you have to, uh, get them to market. Uh, you have trucks, you have equipment overhead, you have horses, you have wranglers, all those types. And so even though you you may have a, a free, a quote unquote, free resource from the government, Uh, That resource is not particularly productive. It's extremely arid, uh, and you have to roam over a very vast territory to the point where they actually they had cattle that were not even branded. And so, in other words, those cattle were not uh, not officially recognized or inventoried even, and they were uh, feral. And so, it it had been a long period, and the government during Obama basically decided to crack down. The question is why? Why then? It was a long period of time, and so they were they were claiming that the Bundys owed a million dollars in back fees uh, for non-payment, and w- which is sort of indisputable. Uh, they they just didn't pay it. Uh, but what is in dispute is why was the government doing this? I mean, you could sort of say that it was for the tortoise, I guess, but. Uh, I remember Stefan Molyneux commenting on this at the time, and he was basically saying, "Well, if the government really cared about." tortoises that much they wouldn't have dropped you know 50 atomic weapons in the desert you know when they're developing their their uh, weapon systems uh and wiping out any any life you know in the 
50 mile square radius or whatever it was that they wiped out. Uh, so that's how it all got started. We can get into the details, but um, Dylan, you know, how did you read this? I mean, these, these guys were not really on the surface of it saying, you know, this is about Mormonism, but it, it quickly came to the the public's attention that these people were, the Bundys in particular, were, were Mormon, and they were using the, almost like the same religious uh, prophetic language that Joseph Smith uh, seemed to, and they were using in particular a book, I think it was like the, the Book of Nay, it's called, uh, but Maybe you could draw some connections between the Mormons and the Bundys and, and tell us what, what that's all about. So I came to know about the Bundy thing sort of as it was happening, and I was aware that immediately that they were Mormon because one of them, uh, Ammon Bundy, Ammon is a name that if you recognize, uh, that's definitely Mormon. It, it's from the Book of Mormon. I don't remember exactly who, but there are certain names like that that, they're easy to, to notice because they don't come from anything else. But uh, it's strange because the Bundys have certain elements that are very in line with sort of a away from the Mormon HQ, but still within the Mormon church. You know, this sort of older version of Mormonism that uh, is, I guess you could say, closer to the land. Um, and at the same time, the Bundys also have a very big influence they take from something like sovereign citizens, where they think that there's some quirk of law that makes what they're doing legal or okay or something like that. They, they just don't understand that the letter of the law is really not that important. And so the combination of that, that legalistic understanding as well as their faith leads them to think that they can get away with what they're doing. Um, but it's a really interesting case that somebody from our side could easily do another podcast um, and cover it very yeah, differently. The whole it's thing a is very just wild a disaster, case. like on all levels. Like nobody yeah. came out of that situation looking good. Uh, like absolutely no party involved and there is of course all sorts of chicanery going on by the uh the feds that came out thankfully uh in the uh the various court cases uh, around that i think uh, all of which resulted in either uh, mistrials and uh, dismissals with prejudice because of gross misconduct uh, by the federal government or outright acquittals um i mean i i followed that fairly quick fairly uh closely and the sort of aftermath and uh there there was this sort of cultural uh dimension to it that clearly had a lot of um a sort of like coincident affiliation uh with the mormon church um or i i wouldn't even really say the mormon church but like kind of the the Mormon cultural movement. Um, right, that'd be much kind of, more accurate. Like linked to, uh, for instance, this conception of the U.S. Constitution as a divine uh, document. Um, but I I mean, there really wasn't kind of a, um, like a, a theological 
uh, elements to it. Um, like in, in terms of the rhetoric of anyone involved, um, are, they, are, you, are you talking about the the protesters? I mean, the Bundys and Ryan Bundy in particular, I, I would argue, were channeling a lot of uh, that sort of white horse. <clears throat> excuse me, that that white horse prophecy. And, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of that is somewhat, sort of. <clears throat> they'll be hesitant it, to admit that to the public, but I think internally, a lot of their motivation and, and sort of self-image was i think wrapped around a lot of that theology to be right honest, and I, I think like th- this is like an example of an actually effective dog whistle because nobody had any clue what the fuck they were talking about um except oh, very much so <laughs> like i mean if you look at some of the uh the communiques uh that they put out like okay like you can kind of see some of the uh the sovereign citizen stuff bleeding through but you you really have to be pretty steeped in that milieu before you uh recognize kind of some of the uh the specific claims that they're making as they're like kind of uh, invoking this uh, request for mutual aid or whatever. Well, well to the government, yeah. they weren't they weren't saying anything about the white horse, obviously. But what they were saying was that, and and this is where I think it was a little sketch. But they were saying uh, they had they had preemptive rights, whatever that means. It sort of sounds yeah, like I mean, to it's me. like it, it, that that that's the sort of thing that like this is sovereign citizen just like mouth dribble yeah. where it means whatever and anyone the, and wants. And the legal it to argument, and I don't think they won on a legal ground. I think it was just sort of a uh, oh, they didn't, they didn't win anything. It, it pissed in, off in legal at the government for being so arrogant. I think that was the, why they won. But it was um, basically the legal argument. I think they were attempting to make was that the Bureau of Land Management is not in the Constitution, and the government has no business doing that. And the fact, that, and they were sort of trying to make. Uh, there's probably some legal argument you can make that I mean, sort of historically you can be grandfathered into an area where you've been running cattle for decades, which is what they've been doing. Um, but it, it's it's the it, how they won. It's it's really not uh, coming down to. No, I mean the how the how law, they how they won was like pretty straightforward. They're like the bureau of land management and god only knows what other federal agencies were harassing and, and us we felt FBI, threatened FBI. and so we called for aid the the federal government lied in court about uh having placed a, a various intrusive surveillance apparatuses and having snipers surrounding their property they were caught out on their lies and the uh the judge declared a mistrial like it was basically That's that right. simple, but on the merits, was, they were they had completely that lost. Was the, there was a separate case in Oregon. Oh yeah, the Mallory stuff go, was that a did go to trial. And yeah. the reason they lost, or the government lost, I should say, was just the jurors just felt like the the, the government was acting like bullies. And well, yeah, I mean, when, also, when it turned out, one like, of the jurors was quoted <laughs> as saying, "This, the 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 fight that the Bundys are fighting." is indicative of the death of rural america and like that's a quote right and i think there there's something to that is it's just there there seems to be whether you believe in agenda 21 or or not there seems to be and it and this is why you know you you have to ask you know is it really about the turtles or is it really about just getting rid of ranchers who are independent of the government and the system as as a whole 
it, there seems to be a push to it's never about the turtles right and, and i mean this is pretty easy to see but it, it doesn't make them look any better in the grand evaluation of like how do you actually make yourself survive because some hawaiian district judge will say like will literally say that the university of hawaii has a property interest in being able to import students into the country from arbitrary foreign nations like that that's literally like well we think that's plausible enough that we'll grant a preliminary injunction but like you asshole do not have the right to graze your cattle on the same land that your great great grandfather was grazing cattle so i mean like okay i mean that's obviously you know like you can see why somebody might perceive an injustice there but just because there's a injustice doesn't mean that you win unless you have i mean the reason that injustices persist is because you you don't win you don't get to win you're some guy you're not part of the power structure you're a kulak you're literally a land-owning peasant that they have decided is politically opportune to crush for various reasons and i mean you can like you know use the manifest injustice of this at least according to a, ter- a certain telling in order to try to you know solicit mutual aid or whatever but i mean that that doesn't mean that those arguments actually fly in the court that's screwing you over and it doesn't mean that all of the shouting about injustice in the world actually lets you win uh, either you know in kind of a, a raw power sense or in a moral sense after they're done putting you through the ringer and uh you know costing you untold amount of money and uh screwing with uh, every one of your uh kind of ill-witted uh, allies so like the whole thing was a disaster and the confidence that god is on your side i mean it, it's great but it it doesn't actually mean that you get to win at any particular point but hey there's a lot of, what's more american yeah. than almost getting waco to overall grazing rights i mean yeah you got me there uh, interestingly like so one of the uh one of the bundies um i think uh, ryan bundy uh he ran for uh governor of nevada and uh, he got like you know like eighteen thousand votes or something in the primary which is you know a laughable total but uh still it's like hey that's uh that's about a division and a half uh if uh you know you're gonna go full uh full western uh well, western cattle nutter this is what's interesting about it is that again in this uh, somewhat leftist or very leftist uh, public radio station piece on this topics, uh, one of the segments they would play is the sort of other ranchers in the region going to meetings and basically disagreeing with what the Bundys are doing and and asking questions about well how, you know the the Supreme Court interprets the con- uh, the Constitution you don't interpret the constitution you know who makes you the authority here that sort of thing and the the reason i bring that up is the the sense that i got was that the bundys were not really representing other ranchers or ranchers as a whole they're representing themselves 
And, and this is again another thing that the the piece was trying to emphasize for probably obvious reasons, they were, rep- they were, the Bundys weren't particularly representing these people, but they were attracting people who were basically had a gripe with the government as a whole. Yep. And the journalist did a pretty good job of documenting the types that would, that would show up there. They were typically people who unfortunately just didn't have much success in their life. Uh, there was a dune buggy business guy that failed. And there was a guy who was trying to do uh, guns and ammo and camping gear. He failed. He ended up uh, at the Bundy standoff. And then there was another particularly uh, notable group. Uh, those was the Millers. Uh, and they ended up actually murdering a couple of police officers and then draping them in a uh, swastika flag, Nazi flag, if you want to call it that. And so, of course, the media, you know, zooms in on that. Uh, but and the Bundys sort of tried to distance themselves from this this group. But really, wasn't about ranchers. It was about people just who didn't like, you know, FedGov. <clears throat> and the fact that they won, I think this is maybe what you're saying, Hank, is that it, the fact that they won is, first of all, sort of a an incredible achievement, but incredible in the sense that you can't expect that to be the likely outcome if you were to do something remotely similar to this. Uh, but they were able to do that nonetheless. I think that is somewhat impressive. Uh, but at the end, the final analysis, what did they gain for all their trouble? Well, they gained not being thrown in prison. Okay, but they didn't... I don't know if they're still having to pay this million dollars. Oh, they, they are. Maybe somebody... Like that's, yeah, they are. I mean, yeah, the, that, the that civil exactly judgment, so. like, that's... <laughs> like, they're... They're still so completely screwed. I mean, you can't look at these events without kind of the prism of, you know, this, uh, the original standoff. Like, I, I would say just, like, ignore the the Oregon situation in the whole analysis here because it's such an obvious shit show that, I mean, like, when two-thirds of the people that show up are federal informants, and I, that that's not hyperbole. It's It was literally about two-thirds that came out in court. Right. Uh, right. Like... <laughs> Like, bro, what did you expect to happen when you tried uh, this the second time? Um, but, I mean, just looking well, at the... And, and the... what did you expect to happen? Let's talk about... Um, who was it? What was his name? Is it Eamon? The guy who got killed. Um, Lavoie Fincom. Oh, Lavoie, that's right. You, that's you know, Adam, in a certain sense, this was like uh, the InfoWars Charlottesville, except no one went to prison. Yeah, I mean that's really. So, like I was saying, like you, like this, these all happened in 2014. So this is the second half of Obama's second term, with every expectation that you know, second uh, the uh, the subsequent uh, president after that was just going to be. Zog Infinity uh, final election to the extent that elections matter, which they really won't to this point anymore. Like people were extremely, uh, especially people in that milieu, and I'm not saying like the Mormon milieu, but like kind of the uh, Western quasi sovereign citizen, like my guns and my religion types, uh, a lot of whom were not Mormon, but who had a significant overlap with kind of the Western rural Mormon coalition, I guess. And they were extremely blackpilled and for extremely good reasons. And they, you know, 
I, I, I think a lot of this was, uh, uh, I don't know, like that I'm trying to put myself in the mind frame of people who think that this is a good idea and I just can't. So I'll say that maybe they didn't even think that it was a good idea, but like might as well fuck around and find out because probably God is on our side. Uh, and you just have to fight these evil fuckers at some point. <laughs> I mean, that that's the closest I can come to that, that yeah, mindset. That respect, is... you got to take your hat off to them a little bit for taking a stand. I mean, you know, whether the, the, the specifics are actually legitimate or not, we, we all have, I think, very legitimate complaints about the federal government. And you, you rarely have an opportunity to bring them to a point where you're actually negotiating with them it's usually just you have to obey and the fact that they could even bring them that far i think is in some ways a a propaganda victory but again in a practical sense i i agree with you hank it's not anything i'd recommend anybody i know or love to go do because please don't do that and, and especially don't invite journalists to be like oh hey that's phil over there He's got his rifle pointed at federal agents over that overpass. You should go and interview him because we're doing God's work over here. Like, like my God, guys. Like, so, so to bring it back to to the, the Mormon Church, uh, and and I mentioned Lavoy. Thank you for remembering his name, Lavoy Finnicum. He was the one person who was, uh, other than you know, of the of the standoff people, he was the one person that was killed. Uh. And the way he was killed, you know, there's there's video footage of it. It's 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 pretty uh, sad to see it. I I don't think um, you know his mind was in maybe the best collected place, but I don't think he deserved what he got. But you you can be the judge of that if you want to check out some of the footage of where they uh, they they shot him. But before that, he was being interviewed by a lot of journalists, and I remember at the time I actually watched one of these interviews. It was. You know, just some like journalist guy from NBC. I can't remember exactly, but uh, Lavoie in, in his somewhat very famous at this point pose. He's sitting in a camping chair, wearing full hunting garb and a cowboy hat, with a rifle not not you know in his uh, in his hands, but on his on his legs. So he's not actually pointing at anyone, and it's I think it's still in the case, so you couldn't actually view that as as brandishing, but. Um, he was being asked by the journalist or the reporter guy with the, the television crew. He was asking him, you know, what, what do you say? You know, the Mormon church has recently come out and disavowed you know, the actions that you have taken here. And you are a member of that church. You know, what do you have to say about that? And he basically said, you know, I have nothing negative to say about the church. They have everything, you know, they have every right to decide what they want to decide. But, you know, I, for you know, reasons that he's giving, uh, I have decided that this is what I must do. And I thought that was interesting to sort of highlight the official declaration of the church and what they were doing. Uh, so, Dylan, you're our guest. Uh, maybe you, if you have any final words or thoughts on this, maybe you could kind of comment on how the church uh, viewed the Bundys. Go ahead. How the church viewed them and how just people that you knew involved uh, viewed them. Involved with the so, I... Um, Generally, I think most people who I knew who, I don't want this to sound 
unkind, but were smarter and not part of the militia group sort of saw this as, well, maybe they can win that battle, but they're never going to win the war. And so it was just incredibly stupid. But I think a lot of people did have respect for them because they look around, they look at, at maps of the Western states and they see how much the federal government owns and they see how the federal government operates and, you know, what they use that land for. And it definitely seems wrong. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of Mormons supported, at least the Mormons that I knew, supported the Bundys, but also understood why the church couldn't support them openly. You know, they, people who were aware of the church's history and fighting the federal government directly understood that if the church stands against the federal government, that the federal government has no problem seizing all of their property and, and taking them on with every bit of force that it took on the Branch Davidians if it had to. And so I think that informed a lot of people being okay with the church not backing them up because they understood that there was the church surviving was more important than that one battle.